Welcome to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety and technology share knowledge and experiences and discuss events and trends in food safety. Here's your host, Dr. Peter Teramina. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Andrew L. Milkowski. Andy Milkowski was born in Munich, Germany to parents displaced by World War II. The family immigrated to the U.S. and settled in the Chicago area. Andy studied chemistry at University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana and then went on to University of Wisconsin-Madison where he earned his Ph.D. in biochemistry. In 1977, Andy joined Oscar Meyer Foods in Madison, Wisconsin, which is now a division of Kraft Heinz. He was a research scientist initially working on byproducts as raw materials for pharmaceuticals. And during his tenure at Oscar Meyer Foods, he led the applied and basic research programs before achieving the designation of a Kraft Foods Fellow, which is the most distinguished position for scientists within Kraft Foods. He retired in 2006 and joined the Animal Sciences Department at University of Wisconsin-Madison as an adjunct professor and member of University of Wisconsin's Food Research Institute Executive Committee. Andy's one of the foremost experts on the topic of food safety and processed meats. Application of his discoveries has resulted in processed meats that can be enjoyed with significantly fewer concerns about their safety. What you'll hear about in today's episode is the history behind the development of lactate and diacetate as antimicrobial compounds that are used in ready-to-eat meats to prevent the growth of Listeria monocytogenes, and how Oscar Meyer and Andy's team partnered with a company called Purac, today they're called Corbion, to develop a predictive model that is used by industry to this day. Dr. Milkowski has long provided his expertise to the North American Meat Institute, and particularly, he served as chair of the Sodium Nitrite Advisory Committee. This committee did a lot of work educating scientists and regulators about the scientific basis for the use of sodium nitrite in, in cured meats and as an essential ingredient for its safety. These efforts led to uh, the National Toxicology Program and the California Departmental Reproductive Toxicant Committee to affirm that nitrite in cured meats is not only safe, but plays an essential role in protecting public health. As a result, Andy and the committee were awarded the American Meat Institute's Industry Achievement Award, which is the highest award given by the association. Andy is recognized internationally as an expert in meat processing and formulation optimization, as evidenced by 10 patents by him and his team and 15 peer-reviewed publications. His expertise is sought out today by the industry, and he is a consultant that uh, helps companies with meat processing, meat technology, and meat safety. Andy is uh, known as not only a great scientist but a, and an expert, but also one who is knowledgeable, a good business partner, and a person who does the right thing. So right now I have this fancy title called Adjunct Professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Department of Animal and Dairy Sciences. And uh, it basically means that uh, I satisfy my ego with the fancy 
title, but um, I'm a volunteer there and I do some lecturing in a few classes. Uh, I get involved with some research primarily uh, with Jeff Sindelar, uh, who's our extension meat specialist and does quite a bit on food safety, uh, some on uh, aspects of uh, curing meats with alternative curing chemicals. Um, and I work with the Food Research Institute and uh, uh, have a wonderful time. And I think the most endearing thing I've had uh, there is that since I retired from Oscar Mayer in 2006, it's kept me active and kept my mind engaged with the things I loved doing during my working career and brought a whole new aspect to it that I never realized working in uh, the R&D department of a large company and, and not seeing the rest of uh, the world around uh, with students and uh, their aspirations and, and all and uh, small companies who we I get to meet a lot of people from that in extension activities. So mm -hmm. it, it's uh, just uh, been a fabulous 16 years since I retired. <laughs> and, uh, and I still get to do some research, which is really interesting. So you've had Bob Hansen as a prior mm -hmm. person on uh, podcasts, and we've got a group of folks uh, uh, working on aspects of... Uh, thermal processing and chilling uh, at UW, and I get to uh, throw my ideas into the mix as uh, we work on designing studies to address certain questions here and there. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a lot of fun. Well, this stimulating. extends, does, this does extend well beyond Wisconsin, right? The state of Wisconsin. Oh yeah, so the things we've been working on in the past few years have been around Appendix A and B, uh, with thermal processing uh, and the new uh, documents that USDA has put out as safe harbor guidance documents. And uh, they still leave a lot of questions that uh, a meat processor would have. So on the cooking side, which is Appendix A, there's quite a bit of, of concern around um, the properties of salmonella that uh, create a thermal resistance when the cells get desiccated. And this is really important if you have a process where the surface of a product dries out and if you have salmonella there, they get heat resistant and your cooking process won't kill them. And all of the old Appendix A tables were based on looking at salmonella in the interior of a product where it's nice and moist and they behave as you would expect, but uh, on the surface of a product, it's different. And um, Bob Hansen's come up with this really brilliant way of uh, thinking about it in terms of um, keeping the surface moist using wet bulb and dry bulb and processing. He calls it hydrated surface lethality and it's uh, a pretty simple concept and makes a lot of sense from an engineering and a thermodynamic standpoint. But basically, if you keep the wet bulb high enough, as the temperature goes up, the surface stays moist and you get enough time and, and warm temperatures to 
inactivate the salmonella and uh, the work that's been going on with uh, Jeff Sindler's lab, Bob's been involved. Uh, we've had some people from Food Research Institute, uh, grad students, summer students, uh, working on how this might be applied to uh, impingement oven cooking, which is an extreme case where you've got 450 degree air coming in and um, at best you can have about maybe five or six percent relative humidity if you have a wet bulb of 212. Uh, and so it's, it's totally outside bounds of, of anything that you'd see written in Appendix A, but you need to put a little moisture into that system uh, to get a wet bulb reading of uh, around 180. Uh, and then you can kill salmonella at the surface in a fast three minute, five minute nugget uh, patty cooking mm -hmm. process at, at those high temperatures. If you don't do that and you just run at ambient conditions, uh, you won't get a seven log reduction. And and uh, we did some work on that, published it, and we're doing more work to follow up and and uh, further elaborate it. Is that in JFP Journal of Food Protection? Uh, Biology okay. is the okay. journal, and and um, you know, it's been shown to USDA and and. They appreciate it and it's helping to adjust their thinking as we get into more uh, uh, refinements of Appendix A that'll come out in the, in the future. But there's a lot to do, and it can apply to barbecue and all kinds of, of other things. And then the flip side of, of Appendix B, and that's been highly controversial because uh, some are questioning the underpinnings of, of it with respect to the uh, baseline level of Clostridium perfringens spores that you might have. Uh, but, um, you know, there's uh, been a lot of work done at FRI that I had a, a, a little bit of work with them looking at uh, how you might uh, meet the requirements of, of uh, limiting perfringens growth in a cooling curve. Uh, under a variety of conditions, whether you have a first phase where you're going from 130 to 80 Fahrenheit on the cooling side uh, extended, or the second phase going from uh, 80 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and uh, layering on top of that uh, uh, using a lot of the antimicrobials that we already have in, in processed meat products for listeria control. And, and seeing how they affect that. And the good news is that they delay Clostridium perfringens growth and, and Kathy Glass and, and her group have done a, a lot of really good work there uh, with that. And I, I had the good fortune to be part of the, the groups uh, discussing how our experiment's going to be designed mm -hmm. uh, in the past. That seems like a, just a great team that you're working with here at University of Wisconsin-Madison with Dr. Sindelar, Dr. Glass, um, maybe Chuck Saprinsky as well involved? Yeah, in Chuck has been involved. Uh, some of the 
uh, I'd say lab scientists uh, that are on staff at FRI and mm -hmm. in the applied research lab there, uh, some of the graduate students that have come through and, and their contributions, and some of the undergraduate summer scholars that we, uh, as we call them, in, in a program where they get to work in a lab doing research for a summer uh, while they're an undergraduate and uh, get that experience of, of uh, executing experiments and going through all of the heartaches of uh, making things work when mistakes happen inevitably and, and all. So um, it seems like that a lot of the research very applied and now with the construction of the new BSL-2 meat mm -hmm. processing laboratory in the department, um, there's just going to be even more uh, oh, impactful research. That's a fantastic facility. So um, the Food Research Institute uh, Applied Research Lab is, is really great. They have the ability to do small-scale work, largely post-processing inoculations. So you can test ingredients, uh, but you can't go back and test processes uh, easily at all in what they have. They also have the advantage of they have uh, a BSL-3 uh, you know, licensed bot lab, so they can do uh, C-bot work, which uh, yeah. is a rarity today. What we've got it uh, attached to the new meat lab is a BSL-2 facility uh, where it's a full processing facility as well as the lab associated with it. So the capabilities there are, you know, we can inoculate raw meat and do a full process and look at processing uh, that would affect that and some of the the Appendix A work that mm -hmm. uh, I was talking about is we've been doing in an impingement oven in the yeah. BSL-2 lab there. Um, but, I mean, can even go back further and we can harvest uh, small numbers of animals there mm -hmm. so you, you could, uh, you know, inoculate uh, a live animal or a carcass and, and evaluate carcass treatments uh, and that's a new capability that, so that we would have here. That, so that's beef yeah. and pork? Beef and pork or poultry. Poultry we can as well. Do them all. Wow, yeah. fantastic. And, yeah. uh, and of course, facilities are great, but people are, are you know, equally important. And, and so Cindy Austin, who I worked with at Oscar Mayer in the latter part of my career, uh, and she came out of the uh, Center for Food Safety and at Georgia with the master's degree, I mean, she's running that, and mm -hmm. uh, she's a busy person right now doing mm -hmm. a lot of things, and, uh, and, and and there's a lot of crossover between what she's doing in her lab and what FRI is doing, and a lot of collaboration there, too. Excellent. So you've been <coughs> with the University of Wisconsin for, you said, 16 years, is that right? Yeah. So let's... Time flies. <laughs> yeah, and a lot yeah. of impact in that time. And, and I think I probably met you after, probably about the time you retired from Oscar Meyer, 2006. Yeah, I retired in 2006. I think we met yeah. somewhere around 
1999 to 2001. Mm. Yeah. And because we were both on the, at that time, AMI Scientific, Scientific Affairs Committee. Yeah. And you were representing Smithfield. Mm -hmm. And I was there from the Oscar Meyer team. And uh, in 1998, the end of 98, early 99 was when everybody in the world was scrambling to deal with uh, listeria and ready-to-eat meats. Yes. And um, uh, that was a, a really, really uh, stressful time on the one hand because um, Sara Lee at that time had the problem with their Bilmar product uh, in a plant in Michigan. And you know it, it was a tragedy for for the people who were impacted with listeriosis and and the folks who died and and the miscarriages involved and it was a um, a new wake up for the meat industry uh, and the USDA and I mean the world hadn't really appreciated that listeria was that type of a risk now that. that Everybody knew that listeria was there, could be pathogenic, uh, and had a relatively high mortality, but it always was appreciated also that you had to be exposed to a fairly high number of organisms for, for listeriosis to occur. And what people didn't fully appreciate, they might have kind of known, but they didn't really appreciate it, that it could grow under refrigerated conditions nicely uh, in vacuum packaged meat products and in milk products and in some cheeses and and um, that tragedy brought it to the forefront so um, the processed meat industry had a problem they had to address it and, and fix things and um, there were so many good things done in the industry and it's something of a success story in how that was addressed. Uh, took time, took um, millions and millions and millions of dollars across many companies and uh, we learned how to deal with it. Uh, and if you look today, we don't have listeriosis outbreaks associated with the uh, ready to eat meat products uh, like we we did in that era and it's thanks to a lot of a lot of moving parts uh, first of all is we uh, all the equipment has been fundamentally redesigned to make it cleanable whereas before it wasn't necessarily cleanable and so we uh, don't have listeria persisting the way it did in that time so if you went into a plant today and did some environmental monitoring and did lots of it, you might find that the environmental positives for listeria species, not monocytogenes, uh, but just the broader listeria species in food contact surfaces is down under a tenth of a percent pretty typically uh, 
and if you went back to 1999, it was around two in some places, six or 10%. Mm -hmm. And that's thanks to uh, the equipment redesign and the, the really, really diligent systems that have been put into place for uh, separation of uh, uh, raw and ready to eat, uh, uh, handling pathways, people pathways, uh, and the monitoring that was put into place. And that's had a big impact. And then uh, second, another part has been all the interventions that have been, gone into place. Post-lethality uh, treatments. Post-lethality treatments, high pressure has come on. Mm -hmm. Uh, in that era, radiation was being strongly considered, but uh, consumers were never going to accept that. We did a few tests. Uh, there <laughs> we were, did. You we, did too? We explored that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. But Hormel did a yeah. lot of work on it and were really leading that. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it works, but uh, people were too worried about it. And um, technically, it works fine, and there's not any harm, but, uh, you know, the customer's always right in that front. Which leads to formulation, which yeah. you at Oscar Mayer, were, you were working with the industry leader, I think, in that area as far as listeria growth inhibitors. Yeah, So and that's an interesting story. So uh, so what happened with Sara Lee, and that was made public, I think, in December of 1998. Uh, a couple of months later, in early 1999, uh, Oscar Mayer recalled one product line due to a single illness from uh, someone in Kansas City who recovered. Uh, and uh, at that point, uh, our management uh, decided that, oh boy, we, we've got to do something, and we need to really put a lot of effort up on it. So we had this three-pronged approach within the company. Uh, so there was the environmental and operations uh, plant uh, facilities and how those got reconfigured, and that was within the company called uh, Project Forward, and there were a lot of really, really dedicated people uh, who spent a lot of time figuring out how we had to do environmental monitoring, uh, what equipment had to be just tossed out and replaced uh, you know, with uh, finished product handling and packaging lines, and, and um, how plants had to be reconfigured uh, for people and product flow to uh, appropriately deal with that. Uh, and that was really an operations uh, part. And then the R&D part was to try to figure out some new technologies to address the risk. And then there was a th third group working with uh, USDA, uh, and these were the government relations folks, to basically try to balance uh, what we were doing and trying to do right and still run a business and with uh, the necessity to face that we had to regulate this better too and USDA was going to do it one way or another but to receive the input based on you know, our knowledge. 
And it wasn't just Oscar Mayer, it was other companies, and that was run through the American Meat Institute, now North American Meat Institute, and they had this um, team with uh, members from any of the companies who were members that wanted to have people contributing, and I think you got in, uh, were involved with that. And what evolved from that, which uh, was really uh, a very, very good good uh, sort of organizational principle was that um, the companies agreed that food safety should not be a competitive issue. Prior to that, you know, Oscar Mayer and Hormel and, and Cargill and ConAgra and, and Smithfield, and, you know, we're, we're super competitive. And, and so you, know, you get the technical people there and we'd all stay pretty tight-lipped about what was going on in our shops because we didn't want to divulge anything because uh, we needed those business advantages. Well, um, through the executives and the companies and, and the AMI talking about it at the AMI board level, uh, they said, okay, food safety can't be a competitive uh, uh, arena and we've got to share best practices amongst all the companies. And so a mechanism got set up within uh, the AMI to share what all these operational practices were, how companies were reconfiguring their lines and, and uh, uh, what they were doing uh, to address Listeria, where were the troublesome spots went, and uh, that went on. The R&D folks, where I was part of it, we were talking about things. So we were starting a project to look at uh, all types of things. Post-packaged pasteurization, we looked at high pressure. Uh, we weren't focused on irradiation, but Hormel was. We started looking at ingredients full scale. And um, we would meet periodically and say, okay, we're working on this and that. And to the extent that we had some results that we could share, we would would do that if things were indeterminate. We'd still let other people know that we're working on it. And I think that's still continuing uh, today. Um, we tried lots of things with, uh, within our shop, and, and uh, one of them was uh, a, turned into a commercial product put out by Alcar at the time, and it was flash steam mm. pasteurization. And this was based on a USDA ARS Eastern Regional patent that, where they were looking to eliminate salmonella on the surfaces of chickens. And they had found that if you expose this, uh, a whole chicken to um, some steam, the steam would condense on that cold chicken and it would transfer heat to the surface and kill surface salmonella very effectively. And it was a note there, and uh, Alcard had noticed it, and they talked to USDA and got you know, the ability to draw upon that patent, and they then thought, well, they wanted to incorporate it into a packaging equipment where at the package sealing point before you sealed, you would do that to uh, some ready-to-eat processed meat going into the package. Hmm. And they had this uh, a division called Rapid Pack, 
you know, form-fill steel, steel uh, packaging machines. And uh, the problem they had was they didn't have a place to do any testing. Well, they were 30 miles away, so we got into collaboration and mm -hmm. set things up and, and we're doing some of the work in, in our facility and uh, some up in, in their shop. With the actual pathogen, Listeria monocytogenes, or? Uh, we were. Okay. Uh, we had a separate building on our grounds that uh, we took over and uh, we did some proof of principle work and, and uh, evolved that and Rapid Pack was doing the machine design uh, on that and it was working and eventually they marketed a, uh, an add-in to a Rapid Pack machine which was in, put into uh, the, the ceiling part it was an extra foot or two and they brought it, they had a head that looked like um, Methuselah with all the, the steam lines coming in to hit all the pockets mm -hmm. that would inject steam. And, and then they had a, uh, um, uh, a vacuum system too to draw out all, all that condensed moisture and they worked on it and they sold a number of instruments. I'm not sure if, uh, if they're still out on the market now. I know a few companies bought them and they may be used now more for helping with shelf life than with pathogen reduction. You get about a two log reduction, or what, what do you think? Uh, uh, Certainly no more than four. Yeah, no more than four. Now, that's an interesting way people were looking at it. So at that time, uh, and, and it is, how do you look at it and how do you measure something like that? So for post-packaged pasteurization, at least in our place, we were thinking about it in terms of, okay, how reliable can you be at uh, killing every last organism and not having any survivors when you put in a, uh, a challenge? And so what's the reasonable challenge? Uh, for whatever reason, we used a challenge of four logs of organisms deposited on the surface. And we would do this in sextuplet. And it, it's similar to sort of a, uh, a mouse bioassay for botulism in that we do that, run the process, and we'd want to see no survivors with an enrichment. And that's a really tough thing to do because you could get 3.5 log reduction, but you still have survivors then. Yes. and. Uh, the weakness of that is that if there are any survivors, they will grow, and in a month, you're back to the same problem you had before. And, and this only works really well for skinless sausages or maybe natural casing sausages, but not sliced luncheon meats. It doesn't work for sliced luncheon meats because yeah. in between the slices, if you contaminate, you don't touch it. Yeah. So you had other other endeavors yeah. in that realm. So that's why we started focusing on ingredients, because uh, that we thought might be more universal. Well, there's another problem, another issue too with any of those is, how do you know that you've applied the process correctly? Hmm. That you didn't miss a package or two or 10 or 15 or 20 on a line. Yeah. Say your, your steam pressure dropped or something and you didn't notice it. So those were things that, that mm. bothered us about sure. that approach. So we went to look at ingredients. <clears throat> and it turned out that 
we had <clears throat> about 10, 12 years earlier, started using sodium lactate as an antibotulinal ingredient in uncured turkey products. So this goes back to the early 80s. Oscar Mayer bought a company called Lewis Rich and they had uh, a large business associated with uncured turkey breast roasts and some half breasts that typically were handled so they would spoil. But those cook-in-the-bag uncured turkey breasts uh, always were in the back of the uh, minds of some of our folks, especially our microbiologists like uh, John Servany, who uh, was worried that we would have an issue at some point with uh, botulinal risk. And uh, another um, person in R&D, one of the product development directors, a really smart meat scientist, his name is Gene Cease, he got his PhD at Wisconsin. He had read in a trade magazine a little obtuse ad about this stuff sodium lactate, you know, would have some shelf life benefits. So we started testing it and lo and behold, um, it turned out to be a weak anti-botulinum. Uh, so by weak, I mean it, it worked nowhere near as good as nitrite and, and curing would. Mm -hmm. So if you did a challenge test and you know, the standard 30 degree C, 86 Fahrenheit, and you held the products, you know, for a period of time, if, you, if it had nitrite in it and was cured, you had a couple of weeks before the product would, would go toxic. Well, you went from uh, you know, zero to two days out to four to six days. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. If you used the uh, rest- Just lactate. Just lactate. Mm -hmm. But it was uh, an improvement, so the company patented it and we turned it over to an ingredient company and they administered the patent. So we had that out there. And, um, so, and we had tested it and when Listeria came up and we were talking about what are we going to do, how are we going to do that, uh, somebody brought it up, I don't recall who, it wasn't me, uh, and uh, we started looking into it and there was a little bit of work done at Wayne State um, looking at it with Listeria and we quickly kind of realized that you couldn't put enough lactate into a product to sufficiently inhibit listeria uh, and still have a product that people would eat. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you would put in so much that uh, there'd be quality problems. The taste would, would not be what you would like. You'd, you'd get some of this, uh, some people called it bitter, some people called it metallic, but you'd get uh, a noticeable yeah. different flavor. And somehow we came across um, sodium diacetate, which is really half neutralized acetic acid. And we thought about trying to combine them, but then the question uh, became, well, how much of each? And how do you know it's gonna work? And, uh, and that's where we got into doing some statistically designed experiments and we got a, some statisticians uh, involved and we had a lot of people. We had about 25 people working in this whole area. 
uh, at one time or another on this and, and other things. We're looking at uh, bacteriosins and other potential ingredients. Well, with this, we did a response surface methodology and uh, test, and we finally got to a point where we were going to look at four, four uh, factors. Amount of sodium lactate, amount of sodium diacetate, uh, the moisture uh, in the product, and what was the other one? pH. No, maybe it was a three-factor. I think that was, that it was three factors. No water activity. Nope. That was no, that would be a proxy for the you know moisture and yeah. and the oh it's salt. I think it might have been salt. Salt. Yeah, salt. Excuse me. So we ran ran this. So this is a problem when you get old. You know, your, your head goes fuzzy, <laughs> and it's twenty years ago. It's been a long uh, day. Yeah, uh, but uh, so we did this experiment, and we did it. We did a whole set. So it's thirty-two treatments, and we inoculated them with listeria, and every two weeks we threw out uh, a fourteen-week period, uh, you know, which is long. Time, or no, 20 weeks, I'm sorry, it was 20 weeks that we ran out, 140 days. Uh, we were doing samples on all of these 32 treatments, uh, and then we're getting the data, and um, we first did it on cured, and then we did it again on uncured. And what we learned there was that there were combinations that you could use that would sufficiently uh, knock down the growth of, of um, of listeria, and that uh, you know it was promising that you could not kill listeria, which would be the holy grail with the zero tolerance pathogen. Mm -hmm. That's what you wanted, but uh, you wouldn't make people sick, and that was that was the other you know neat part about it. That uh, by that time, FDA and USDA's risk assessment and dose response. Uh, information had come out and so we could overlay that and we could say okay well if we limit growth to two logs over the shelf life we thought we would be in pretty good shape for that and had discussions with uh, USDA and they were okay with it and then uh, the whole regulatory environment uh, around the three alternatives kind of grew out of all of these discussions around what companies were doing and and what USDA felt they needed to, to do to guarantee, you know, safe and wholesome foods too. So anyway, we, we got it done, we built the model, and uh, then it was a matter of converting all of our products to that and uh, talking to our management about doing that. And so I had the job of going to uh, the Oscar Mayer Operating Committee, which included our company president and all of the major function heads, you know, op marketing, operations, quality, and, and so forth, R&D. And um, I had my half hour before, essentially, our division's board of directors and told them where we were and what we thought we could do. And it was, well, two things. We can stop the growth of Listeria sufficiently where we're not going to have illnesses associated with their product. But number two, uh, it's not going to solve a recall if our products are positive. 
So as you know, good as we might get uh, in environmental management, uh, we, we had to acknowledge we never would be perfect and we might face a day where a product of ours had a positive, but it wasn't going to make people sick. We could sleep better that way. And it was going to cost us $12 million a year in formula costs. Uh, and so the first words out of our president's mouth, as Rick's here, uh, was, was that, how fast can you do the conversion? Mm. Wow. And you know, from a, a scientist, first of all, who was given some responsibility to lead all of this, and with it the pressure to figure out something, but also the really uh, good environment where they realized it wasn't going to be easy, and it's going to take time, and they're very patient because I was doing this in somewhere 2001 and 2002. So we're talking a couple of years, a couple of three years after the Sara Lee Billmar uh, episode. And so he said that. Then his second sentence was, was the other one. Uh, how are you going to make every, everybody else do it as well? Mm. Uh, and I thought, and so that was another being on the hot seat type of response. And it was, was interesting. So if you think about business ethics, you know, he automatically was saying, we're going to do the right thing. And it's going to cost us money. And just go do it. Figure out how to do the execution which on over 400 SKUs is a big job because you want to make sure that however you use these different combinations that you don't denigrate the eating quality of the product as well as achieve your goal of uh, stopping wisteria growth. And it was useful to have that model. So over the next week or so, I stewed on it. And then it was the, the proverbial, you know, in the shower, thought process that hit you and I, and uh, the idea I had was that well let's turn over our little spreadsheet model to PureAC which is now known as Corbion and uh, let them do it uh, do the promoting with other companies and in retrospect that was a good idea too because um, Companies are competitive. I'm not even sure it would be legal for us to collude at that level of sharing things with doing that uh, with a lot of details. And the reason we went with PureAct was we already, they were already administering uh, the lactate patent, mm -hmm. which was still in effect. And so we ran it through our business folks and they said, yeah, let's go uh, talked to PureX, so I went to PureX and talked to them. And they said, yeah, they were interested. They're a Dutch company, so uh, they had to check with the home office, and they had an office outside of Chicago. And they came back and they said, yeah, they're interested with one caveat, or two caveats. Number one is that we, this wouldn't get patented because they didn't want to go through any patent disputes, which we had had between Oscar Mayer and ConAgra on lactate. But also, uh, they said we, we would need to publish 
uh, this in a referee journal to, in order to help get the you know the peer-reviewed validity of the model and that. And so they worked out all the business stuff uh, and covering everybody's liabilities and so forth. And uh, we turned the model uh, over to them and that was the version one of the Listeria control model, which I don't know, it's, it's fifth or sixth or seventh generation because they, they've taken it and run with it and further developed it. Uh, now Corvian has it and it it's a great tool for companies to yeah. uh, use these ingredients in their products. Um, and uh, nobody, not many people took advantage of it yeah. until 2003 mm -hmm. when there was another Listeria outbreak uh, in Turkey Breast. Uh, I think it was... Was that the Wampler? Wampler, yeah. Or... Or, uh, wasn't Plantation, I'm trying to think of another one. I forget the name of the company. But, uh, there was a recall of turkey breast associated with it. Yeah, whole deli turkeys? I think so, yeah. yeah. So ready to eat sliceable deli turkey. Yeah. And at that point, uh, the whole industry really uh, got religion, so to speak, and they, they took off. And, and that's when Purac at the time said that's when people really were interested and started, mm -hmm. you know, working on it. In the meantime, we we had done our the uncured part of the that RSM got such modest benefit that we didn't think it was worth anything. But then we had another internal uh, scientist within Kraft. He was actually had come to the U.S. to work at Nabisco uh, from England, and where he worked with Terry Roberts' lab, who's a well-known modeler, and uh, he uh, came into the the picture, and we and talked with us, and and um, uh, Dennis Seaman had developed all of our models, but he and Dennis talked some more. And uh, we took the same data for both cured and uncured and just reanalyzed it in a boundary model, uh, pass-fail type of a, uh, statistical approach, and uh, published that paper too, or David's, I think, the first author on it. David Dennis, Ligon. Yeah, David Ligon. And, and, Dave, and David Ligon is now with the Eurofins uh, mm -hmm. uh, testing company. Um, and that helped too because it, it helped along. And then since then, the model's been refined, mm -hmm. and a lot of other ingredients have been developed uh, to uh, deal with listeria. So uh, we now have these cultured X uh, ingredients, which are consumer friendly, and they are semi-purified fermentation media, which is standardized on lactate, propionate, and uh, acetic acid contents, which are, you know, all uh, short-chain, uh, weak organic acids that, that uh, put a stress on listeria and keep it from growing. And so, to put all that together, it's a success story. We, I mean, you don't hear about listeria illnesses 
process beats today. I, I feel really good about that. It was gratifying things, part of my career, and uh, felt I had a part in it. Mm-hmm. Do you think the current, I mean, the trend now is to use vinegar, and like you said, the fermentates. Mm-hmm. Are they as robust in inhibiting growth throughout 90, 120 day shelf life? Or are we a little more risky at this point without lactate and diacetate as direct addition? I think done well, they're, they're as effective. And the thing that we really didn't test originally that has come into play now that is better appreciated was uh, the importance of pH in the system. So all of our products were somewhere around 6.2, 6.3 pH, just because we were using polyphosphates as part of the ingredient package. Uh, and, um, you know, it, we kind of knew that being weak acids, that the, the business end of the molecule is a protonated acid mm-hmm. with no metal cation, so it's H-O-O-C-H-3 for acetic acid, because that will go through a membrane of, mm-hmm. of the bacteria and then redissociate and acidulate the inside of the cell and stress the cell, so it's got to expend energy to pump that outside the cell, and so it can't grow because it's using all of its energy to do that. Same thing for lactate, same thing for propionate there but they're all probably use that same fundamental mechanism. Um, and uh, in our world, no, we didn't worry about pH, but in the wider world, yeah, that's important. So I think people have been caught short if they've changed the formulation and pH has changed significantly. And what significantly a tenth of a pH unit can be a big deal mm-hmm. if you especially go up. And I think companies evolve towards higher pH products over that era too, uh, because higher pH gives you higher cook yields. And so there's an economic benefit to doing that. You get a little juicier mouthfeel and all of that, but then you weaken your listeria control. But a lot of folks started to realize that and it's appreciated. Now, I, I think big companies probably execute pretty well. Smaller ones, you know, I don't know, but I, I would think that their suppliers are helping them along. And there's more than just Corbion who's sure. supplying these types of products now. Right, but only Corbion has the, the Listeria control model. Uh, yes, I think uh, Hawkins has some types of models, but I'm not sure what they are. I haven't looked at them. Hmm. Uh, Kemen is making some products and they certainly appreciate it, but I don't know what if they're doing any modeling. So uh, that's that's a huge impact on food safety, consumer protection, and um, the advancement of the meat processing industry and the science behind meat processing. Uh, it's fascinating. You were also integral in, I think, in um, explaining the benefits of sodium nitrite and defending the use of sodium nitrite with science. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about that? Oh, sure. So when I started, I started working for Oscar Mayer in 1977, and I was not working on meat products. I was hired to uh, work on byproducts as uh, sources for isolating useful 
bioactive pharmaceuticals, things like heparin, pancreatic enzymes with lipases that could be used to treat cystic fibrosis and, and uh, things like that. But Oscar Mayer, a couple of years after I joined them, uh, decided to uh, change their business model and not slaughter animals for meat, uh, not buy live animals and, and so on. They were just going to buy meat from other companies and, and focus their resources on just processing. Hmm. And for whatever reason, the company kept me on rather than just uh, letting me go and put me into a group called Applied and Basic Research. And, and part of it was it had some promotions and they had an opening in a group there and um, they they put me in charge of a couple of people and it was uh, right in the middle of the whole nitrite controversy which started up in the uh, mid to late 70s uh, when um, similar to kind of the story around Listeria, although I can't tell you the details as, as well, uh, a realization came about that nitrite could react with secondary amines and produce nitrosamines, which are carcinogenic. And in this era, there was an intense scrutiny on the use of nitrite as a curing agent uh, and nitrate. Uh, USDA was involved, the National Science Foundation was doing some some expert committee. They, they published two uh, significant reports. Uh, everybody was uh, looking to see what they could do to deal with it. Would, would there be substitutes? And I kind of got dropped into the middle of that. There were a lot of people around me working at Oscar Mayer who had been looking at how low could you go in, in nitrite and still have a, uh, a decent cured product? Um, There's some of the microbial aspects looking at the uh, botulinal protection. Uh, it was interesting in that era and that the whole debate came about was uh, nitrite there as a colorant <laughs> or um, it was acknowledged that it had anti-botulinal properties, so that was a useful thing. Uh, but there was this law under the FDA called the Delaney Amendment Clause, which said if there is a carcinogen in a, uh, carcinogenic property of an ingredient, that ingredient couldn't be used in food. And it caused a lot of issues on a number of things. Saccharin was under, this, under scrutiny for a long time. Uh, as well as, as uh, because it was questioned as a carcinogen. So nitrite was under that scrutiny and a lot of work went on and the net result of it in about by about 1982 was that uh, the USDA had finalized the, some interim rules to deal with the risk of nitrosamine formation and it was only centered on bacon because forming nitrosamines with nitrite uh, in a meat product requires high temperatures like those you experience uh, with frying bacon. And so the regulations were amended to ban nitrate to, uh, from bacon products. 
um, to limit the amount of nitrite used in bacon to 120 parts per million in going, uh, based on the meat, and to require sodium ascorbate or erythorbate be used as a curing accelerator, but it's also a nitrosamine formation inhibitor. And there was a, a monitoring program uh, put into place, which is now going to be dropped or had been, has recently been dropped, and that was codified in, in 9 CFR, and it was uh, bacon 21 days after packaging would be fried at 340 degrees uh, on a hot plate or a, a, a griddle that was calibrated uh, for three minutes on a side and would be measured by a thermal electron analyzer attached to a, a, a GC, because these were volatile compounds. Mm -hmm. And if you had over uh, a combined total of 17 parts per billion of uh, nitrosodimethylamine and nitrosoperolidine, um, you were presumptively positive, and then you had to go into more elaborate analysis using uh, mass spectroscopy and so forth. Now in that era, they, you know, that was state-of-the-art equipment. Mm -hmm. Now you see GC mass specs all over the place, but uh, they, they weren't present there. But uh, after an, an initial couple of years of companies setting up uh, this equipment in their own labs, like we did at Oscar Mayer, I know Hormel did, I think uh, ConAgra or Armour Smith, Armour, um, Swift. You know, had, Swift had done it, um, and um, they figured out, you know, how to produce bacon where they never got any violations. Mm -hmm. And some of it was tweaking the, the process of curing bacon to deplete the nitrite a little bit more mm -hmm. uh, so that by the time you got to that 21 days uh, and fried it, you weren't forming nitrosamines and, mm -hmm. and so forth. And so by the mid-1980s, everybody was happy and kind of cruising along. And the public was still nervous about nitrite. Um, it was a dirty word in some medical circles because of nitrosamines and, and the worry, worries about toxic ingredients and, and so on. Uh, but not a whole lot went on until you fast forward to 1994. And in May of 1994, the Los Angeles Times uh, printed an article uh, reporting the results of a uh, group of epidemiologists in San Francisco uh, who had done a study uh, and this was an evolving field of nutritional epidemiology where um, they looked at uh, incidence of childhood brain cancer and matched it up with uh, survey-based uh, information that they collected on the mothers of those children uh, and what they ate when they were pregnant. And that created another firestorm around 
nitrite because it was kids and it was brain cancer, a very scary thing. And that reinvigorated uh, what was going on with, with nitrite and the scrutiny it had. And uh, AMI had to rebuild their um, cooperative work amongst the companies on how to deal with this issue. They met with the researchers. They, uh, you know, did a bunch of other things, and I was, you know, mid-career at that time, and um, so that got brought up, and I got involved in it. Now, what had occurred in those intervening fifteen years were a few interesting scientific things. Uh, first of all, back in the original nitrite scare, uh, one of the things that was done at MIT, uh, I forget the um, researcher's name, but but his lab, uh, they did some meticulous uh, nutritional balance studies on humans. And it was basically they measured everything that they ate and looked at it for nitrite and nitrate. And then they measured all of their excreta, stool and urine. And it turned out they excreted a lot more nitrate than they ingested. <laughs> People started scratching their heads, what in the world's going on here? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it got filed away because it wasn't dealing with nitrosamines directly. Mm. But then along the way, uh, later on, uh, some other folks um, who were looking following up on uh, human physiology, finally identified what was prior to that known as the uh, endothelial relaxation factor. It was this unknown material uh, that caused smooth muscles to relax. And I, that's what they were telling me when I was a grad student mm -hmm. in biochemistry. And we studied it, it was in the textbooks. Um, well, that turned out to be nitric oxide. And this explosion of nitric oxide and what turned out in the 1980s and was continuing into the 1990s was going on, not really appreciated by the meat industry or by any of the people concerned about the safety of nitrite and um, there is also uh, a knowledge developing that uh, nitrate is actively secreted into saliva and is, and is reduced to nitrite by the commensal bacteria in the oral cavity and people swallow it. And there was some work done that says, well, you know, why would, why would an organism do that? And the working hypothesis is that it uh, is a form of innate immunity in that uh, some experiments were done with simulated gastric juice, inoculated with a variety of pathogens, including listeria and uh, a whole host of them. And the gastric juice, which is low pH, is much more antimicrobial when this acidified nitrite is there than uh, if it's not there. Uh, so 
which kind of makes nice sense in, in a biological standpoint, but it's not been appreciated in terms of the benefits of uh, nitrate and nitrite uh, and that. And I think of it, it really comes from the late 40s, early 50s, people discovering methemoglobinemia in infants was caused by nitrate that they ingested and got reduced to nitrite in their uh, non-acid stomachs, uh, you know, because they're you know newborns and they're still colonized with some bacteria which would reduce it to nitrite. That would get into the bloodstream and tie up the heme mm -hmm. and basically cause uh, suffocation uh, from a lack of oxygen carrying ability. So all of these things kind of played in together with the fear of nitrate and nitrite uh, in one way or another and it just spilled over with the nitrosamine formations that nitrite had to be bad for you automatically and uh, anything with nitrite in it had to be uh, had to be suspicious. Well back to the history. So after this uh, 1994 New York or LA Times article, uh, it was right before hot dog seasons and hot dogs consumption that summer were down about 10 to 15 percent. It was a disaster. People were, were nervous about it and who wouldn't be, you know, you eat a hot dog and, and you know, a child that you have, and, you know, seven, eight years later gets brain cancer, that, that's a very scary thing. Um, and so in addressing it and trying to find out what these researchers were about and what they were doing and how they came to the conclusions, uh, the meat industry learned another thing, which was a legacy from the early 80s controversy, and that was that nitrite had been put into a cancer testing protocol by a multi-agency program in the uh, government called the National Toxicology Program, and it's supported by a number of other agencies and what they do is they take a substance that you're they're worried about and they do an animal bioassay uh, for these with as cancer to see if they're carcinogenic um, and they involve 50 male and 50 female mice and 50 male and 50 female rats and they're put on a uh, almost uh, lethal but not not totally lethal dose. So they get high doses of material. They typically get three or four doses. Uh, and they're fed this in one way or another. For nitrite, it was done in drinking water for two years. And as the animals die along the way, they uh, work them up and do histology on every tissue that they can recover from the animals. And at the end of two years, they sacrifice the rest of the animals and they do histology and they do a very structured uh, analysis of the tissue slides for any evidence of any uh, hyperplasia or uh, evidence of any cancer uh, uh, forming in those tissues. And then they apply a, a statistical regime to say whether you know, they're seeing it and this is across 30, 40 different organs and tissues. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when they're all done, they summarize it in the classification system, which says there is, you know, 
no evidence, uh, limited evidence, some evidence or convincing or, or definite evidence of carcinogen, uh, this agent being carcinogenic. And nitrite was in the system unbeknownst to everybody because it was quietly done and, you know, advertise it. And the study was done and they were analyzing all the tissues and the report was going to come out. And so meat industry discovered this in 1994, 95. And uh, what the results of that were, would be were looming over them, and if it was going to be negative, uh, it was going to be, you know, uh, we, we weren't going to make any cured meat products. Uh, <clears throat> so, in 1996, my boss, who was in, uh, heavily active in this, because um, he had been earlier, in the earlier years, and he was in charge of the AMI committee, retired, and then uh, none of the other companies had anybody left. Everyone else had retired. So we were the, at Oscar Mayer, we were the last one standing with, you know, any direct expertise and, and carry over the legacy because I'd gotten involved. And so I became chair of that. And we worked through that. And when the report came out, it uh, the preliminary conclusions from NTP were that Nitrite uh, exhibited some evidence of carcinogenicity based on some four stomach lesions in female mice. The other, the rats were, were clear and male mice were clear uh, and all the other tissues were, you know, there's no evidence. In some cases, there were fewer abnormalities in the treated mice than in the control control animals, not the uh, rats and mice. But anyway, the way NTP works is they have a peer review and a public comment period. Uh, and so they had a peer review committee and a public comment opportunity to do that. And that all came to a head in, in 2000. And uh, the preliminary report, I think, came out in late 1998 or, or early 1999. And we started, started started reviewing that, studying it, and had some consultants, toxicologists, uh, former NTP uh, scientist, uh, was a histologist, and you know getting their input in that. And what it came down to uh, is we felt we had uh, an alternative uh, view on those mice relating to, uh, they had an abnormally low number of lesions in the four stomachs of the uh, female mice in the control group. Instead of uh, typically two or three, they had one. And Out of 50. Out of 50. Mm -hmm. And the treated ones had like four. Mm. And so, and there was there were some other things along with how they had changed the diets, gone to a new diet to uh, reduce the number of spontaneous uh, adenomas and carcinomas, you know, so that they could get more sensitivity. Uh, and the other uh, two or three other studies with this new diet 
at two or three in the control group mm-hmm. in our, our test. So uh, we presented that analysis at the meeting for NTP and the review committee agreed with us and they said uh, we're going to lower uh, the classification from some evidence to limited evidence. And that was a, a huge impact in terms of anything with some evidence would be strong enough evidence to have it get under you know, re-examination as a, an acceptable ingredient and, and uh, so on. So uh, it was uh, good for the industry. And as further information on endogenous production of nitrate and nitrite and interconversion of these nitrogen oxides in human metabolism came out, I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, uh, that may sound like we were, you know, splitting hairs doing that, but I think we were right. You know, if the way we use nitrite in curing meat products is uh, a drop in the bucket in terms of added body burden of nitrite uh, to people, so compared to what they make in their own metabolism. Humans make about a milligram per kilogram of body weight a day uh, in nitrite in normal metabolism. If they get some sort of immunological challenge, it skyrockets because macrophages produce nitrite as part of their killing mechanism to attack invading microbes. Mm -hmm. And if you have an infection, you'll be making more nitrite endogenously. And um, by contrast, if you eat, you know, uh, a uh, 45 gram, which is a 10 per pound hot dog, with 10 10 ppm residual nitrite, you're eating a half a milligram of nitrite uh, whereas you're making, if you're 154 pounds, a 70 kilogram standard person for nutritional guidelines, uh, you're making 70 milligrams in your own metabolism. How is 70.5 going to be, you know, put you over the edge, uh, so to speak? And uh, so uh, that was really a, a good. Uh, a good outcome for us. Uh, two weeks after we had that NTP meeting, uh, our same committee was in California dealing with Proposition, what is it? No, I lost. 65? 65, yeah. There's a, new, there's a new one out called 12, which is causing issues. But um, uh, Proposition 65 is a truth and labeling law in California in that if you have a substance in a consumer product that has been known to the state of California, determined by their regulatory authorities to produce, uh, to be carcinogenic, which is one set of classifications, or be a reproductive or developmental toxicant, which is a, a, a parallel set of classifications. You have to put a warning label on the product uh, or otherwise you're faced with uh, huge fines and in California there is a 
litigation industry that is just amazingly robust where uh, lawyers are getting very rich by prosecuting this if, if the state does not uh, find violations and prosecute them because they can go to court and, uh, and sue for damages and they get to keep uh, a good chunk of the damages. Yeah. That class action lawsuits. No, they're not no. class action. So the Direct. fines for infringing are something like mm -hmm. uh, uh, $100 per day per occurrence. Now, if you have a meat product in the marketplace and you're dreamed to be infringing and it's been there for a year and you've sold a million pounds uh, or a million packages and that's a hundred million dollars, you know, for that one product. And it, it leads to bizarre things going on in California. You can go to um, Disneyland and they have to have a, they have a sign on the entrance to Disneyland that says, State of California has determined that there are substances in here that, that are carcinogenic or harmful to your health. Yeah. And that's the disclaimer you have to put. If they didn't have that, Disney, uh, Disney would be sued for infringement and would lose a, a lot of money or settle out of court for, you know, a lot of money. And it's a crazy law, but people in California believe it's useful, so that's what they, they believe. Well, anyway, um, nitrite was uh, being proposed for a listing as a developmental and reproductive toxin, and they did the proposed listing in 98 or 99, and they had their uh, DART, DART committee, which is an independent review committee that the state brings in to review their proposals and say, yep, yeah, it should go on the list or not. And that's in an open meeting. And so uh, uh, about three weeks after we were at NTP, we were in uh, a uh, facility in Oakland where the DART committee was meeting, uh, presenting the view that nitrite should not be listed uh, for a number of reasons. And um, we had some toxicologists uh, speaking and um, that group agreed with us as well, so it was not listed. Uh, so at, in 2000, we felt really, really good. Uh, but the story didn't end there because in 2006, uh, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, uh, which is known as IARC, uh, and, which, and that agency is part of the World Health Organization, which is part of the uh, the UN, um, they uh, commissioned a uh, committee to look at nitrite, and this is a literature review uh, group that does a structured review of substances and determines whether they are a hazard. It's strictly a hazard analysis, it's not a risk analysis. Mm -hmm. But their classifications, you know, uh, have effects on perception and actions around the world. California, under Proposition 65, takes what IARC says, and if they say you are a uh, carcinogen, you're on the list in California automatically. There's no, no process there. They, they just use that. So... 
Um, IARC looked at uh, nitrite and reviewed it, and there were some interesting things that went on there. They did um, list, and I'm, I'm at this point, again, fuzzy on the classifications. They have a, a, a group one, which is definitely a carcinogen. Group two A, which is a probable carcinogen. Group two B, which is a possible carcinogen. Group three is basically not determinate. It says, it, we can't prove it's carcinogen, but we're not gonna say it isn't in, in, in their philosophy. Uh, nitrite was looked at and was listed as a group two, now I forget whether it's 2A or 2B, but it's again reinvigorated the confusion in consumers' minds about the safety of nitrite. I disagree with what they, mm -hmm. they did um, for lots of reasons, but uh, that exists. And then we had another round of IARC uh, reviews on processed meat and on red meats as carcinogens in 2015. And the result of that was um, processed meats were listed as group 2A and uh, red meats were listed as group 2B. Uh, largely based on um, epidemiological associations, which are associations are correlations and they aren't necessarily right. causation. In that and, same output you know, by IARC, they also determined that working second shift is a 2B or something like that, yeah. or 2A. Oh, yeah, they, they have a whole number of, of things that yeah. are crazy. Now, I would contrast that with uh, with respect to nitrite, if you went to clinicaltrials.gov, which is a database of all the clinical trials being done for potential pharmaceuticals or treatment uh, regimes, and now you'll find uh, right now well over 200 uh, trials that are in progress or have been completed looking at nitrite as therapeutic agents, <laughs> uh, which I find is truly bizarre. I, I, it's I, good I, here, but not here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, there's a publication we put out um, in 2015 or 16. I gave a, a talk at an, a conference uh, in Bangkok, actually. It was for the International Congress of Meat Science and Technology, and we talked about that. And if anybody's interested, I'm happy to share it. But it's been an interesting life with, with nitrite. I firmly believe it's safe and suitable as an ingredient. I, professionally, I think I'm on solid ground. There are other people who are don't agree with me, uh, and fine, we disagree. Um, and we'll see where the world goes on policy around that. Thank you for listening to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety share insights. You can find more information about Aetna Consulting Group at aetnaconsulting.com. Our handle on social media is at 
Aetna Food Safety. Please follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever your podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to leave us a review. Until next time, think safe food.